This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Writing Project. OWP supports teachers from all over Ohio and celebrates the professionalism, expertise, and talent of our state's educators. Ohio Writing Project. Teachers teaching teachers. of the Ohio Writing Project. My name is Noah Waspy, and today we are talking with Dr. Kim Parker, whose name you might recognize as one of the co-founders of the Disrupt Texts movement, and she also has a new book out called Literacy is Liberation, Working Toward Justice Through Culturally Relevant Teaching. And I'm going to talk all about it, and we'll get to the interview in just a second, but first, a poem. And this poem I actually lifted out of um, Dr. Parker's book. She cited Amanda Gorman's poem, The Hill We Climb, so I'm going to share a section of it with you today. When day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it, for there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. So if you don't already know, Dr. Kim Parker is one of the greatest thinkers in the field of teaching, and I cannot recommend her book, Literacy is Liberation, highly enough. In this conversation, we talk about um, the book. We talk about what under the thinking that underpins Literacy is Liberation. We also talk about what teachers most often get wrong, and then we get into how to get it right before digging into the tricky politics of thinking about race and talking about race and teaching in a way that is culturally relevant, especially in this just insane, in my opinion, political climate. So here it is, my interview with Dr. Kim Parker. First, I was a classroom teacher for almost 20 years um, and primarily um, city schools. But I, you know, I've also taught in like a really well-resourced suburban school. So I have a nice range of understanding young people, I think, or in working with young people. And I think that um, I've always been interested in how they make meaning of their spaces and how as adults, um, me, I, I'm going to use I statements, how I have often gotten it wrong by thinking I knew what's best for them. And it was only really when I sort of humbled myself and, and, and still like dealing with my own adultism that you realize like kids are really powerful in the, in the ways that they make meaning of the world and the ways they read and write and, you know, use all kinds of literacy practices. So I was thinking really deeply. I've always been thinking really deeply about what does it mean to really create and hold those spaces with young people that really allow them to do high level work, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think that when we are working with kids of color, we so, so many people um, underestimate what they can do. And I was one of those people, I think, because I was um, teaching in city schools where the expectations are low, right? So much of the focus is on behavior behavior for black and brown kids instead of saying like you can write in these really powerful ways beyond the five paragraph essay or beyond the informative um, paragraph. I have a second grader and that's what he's writing, an informative paragraph. Like, are you serious? Are you serious? 
I, I'm like, I die a little bit every time he tells me about the writing they're doing in school. So um, I had to really go actually out into a suburban school to get into a different community of scholars, right? Like mm-hmm. really seeing people, teachers who loved working with young people and who are really doing these amazing reading and writing um, projects with kids to understand that, you know, like we could really get to mastery through these really powerful ways by expecting more from kids. Um, And so that's really sort of how I made it to thinking about my practice. And then, you know, along the way, I went to grad school, got a PhD, um, where I really got to understand the theory behind the practice, because I had been sort of an outlier with the success that I had with um, kids of color, right? Like, Mm -hmm. again, low expectations, people would be like, oh, those kids are doing those things. Of course they are, because they're brilliant, right? They want to, they like actually like the books. They want (laughs) to write about things that are important to them. It's not rocket science. Um, And so that's what I was doing. And it was like kind of delightful. And, you know, as as writing folks, it's kind of (laughs) hard most times, um, but sometimes we all get going in the same direction. And that's how we got there. And so that's what I was writing about. That's what I, and then I started working with teachers, right? Um, mm-hmm. And sort of along the way, have always been in community. That's another community, right? Community sort of grounds the book. Um, have working in professional communities with excellent educators and other teachers who were like, I don't know what to do. Can you help? Right. I want to talk about these things with my students, but I'm afraid. Um, I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. What about? about my administrator, what about the kids? And so um, I was like, okay, maybe I can put together something that is just uh, something that's gonna help people sort of wherever they are, however they show up to take in the book, it's going to be what they need at the moment. So at least they can sort of check in with themselves um, and do what's best for our kids. And so that's how I got here. What did, did the work with the book start, um, like your thinking with the book start before your work with disrupt texts or did it start after during? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's sort of always, I feel like we always have books in us, like, you know, writers, like people who write, um, always have something in them. So I was always writing in some capacity, if that was informal writing or writing to figure out what was going on in my classroom. And so I was, um, I was a fellow with Trisha Abarvia and Ariel Johnson, Tiana Silvis, Anna Osborne, and a couple of other folks. Um, and so we were writing then and sort of thinking about our practice. So I was started, I, I feel like it was probably in that moment of that fellowship that I really sort of moved in that direction. But then, you know, like life is busy. So that book got shelved. And then it was only when Allison Scott from ASCD at the time was like, I think you should write this book. And, you know, pe- uh, people have said that throughout points of my career. And I've been like, no, thanks. But it was sort of like the perfect storm of like, all right, I think I can do this. And she made it so achievable mm-hmm. that and I, and I and she sort of worked in the ways that we would probably work with writers. Right. Just do this one. Just write a little bit. Just write a little bit and send it to me. And, you know, like the feedback was enough to think that like, oh, OK, I, I do have a book in me and this is possible because if it was this huge thing, like you still wouldn't have a book. But you do. <laughs> I'm so glad that you wrote the book because I think it gives like such an such a clear roadmap for one of the trickiest situations, one of the most pertinent situations in teaching right now, especially with all the the political maelstrom that's going on. It I, the thing that your book is helping me the most with is in addition to rethinking my own practice, what you said about being able to talk about race. And in the book, you talk, it's almost like a literacy, illiteracy, being able to talk about race, 
we just choose not to because we're afraid or because we don't know what we don't know. Your book helps with talking about race. It helps with the work that goes into building, you know, the kinds of libraries and literacy that we wanted. But it also gets into some other stuff that I just didn't predict that I didn't realize I needed as much as I needed. So let's get into the book. Um, literacy is liber- liberation and it's taught and it's basis is really around culturally relevant teaching. So could we start just by talking about culturally relevant teaching? Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting because um, Gloria Latin Billings blessed us with this theory so many years ago. And I feel like it was like such a cornerstone of my own teacher ed, right? The three sort of principles, mastery, sociopolitical consciousness, cultural competence. But, right, I also think that people say it and don't really do it, right? We, we like to say we're doing culturally relevant instruction or pedagogy, but what does that really look like? So for me, really, it was a, a time to go back and really dig into it again to be like, okay, what are the, the three, those three main parts? And Latin Billings herself says, like, she's never changed them, right? It has adapted. I think she's more now into culturally sustaining pedagogy, which I get. Um, and I think that, yes, and also, right, um, those three pillars are so practical and important and so hard to do. So that's what's sort of the underpinning of the book. I wanted to I wanted to get it right for myself, right? I wanted to make sure like I had a good understanding of it. And I still think, you know, this is a an attempt to join the conversation and still there's so much to learn and to really think about. And also to think about how do we hold ourselves accountable if we say that this is what we're going to do for really doing those three things. And I think too that we can do one or the other, right? We do two, but we got to do all three to say we're really doing it. And I think it's the, so I was like, what are the pieces that are probably hard for teachers depending on whatever, right? The culturally competent piece, but being culturally competent in our own culture and then our students. Um, and that also includes whiteness, right? Like whiteness is a race um, and white folks got to do white folks work. Um, and also like the social political consciousness piece of, of it. And I think that that can make people nervous, particularly if they're, working with kids of color, right? Because that means you just got to like get out of the way, right? That's a lot of turning and facing things that can be hard, um, but it's really important. And so I think that it's much more, it's as, it's as um, culturally relevant pedagogy is as important right now as it has ever been. And we still, I feel like are grappling to really understand and do those three primarily primary things that um, Dr. Latin Billings gave us. Seems like the biggest, I don't know if it's the word myth or maybe it's the a, a misstep that um, a lot of us make when we're trying to start the journey is just loading a class library with diverse texts. Um, I've heard you say it in three or four different podcasts. Julia Torres talked about it in an interview I did with her a while back at the beginning of the pandemic. I love Julia. I know. <laughs> Who doesn't, right? I know. She's amazing. Um. The first step is always study ourselves. Um, So whether, like, if you want to dig more into what culturally relevant teaching is, buy the book, read chapters one and two. It's a really great explanation. Helped me understand it so much better. But really, it boils down to starting with studying ourselves. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And I think too, thank you. I mean, you are a great hype person, Noah. I am here for it. Just want to say thank you. And also um, I tried to think about like, what are the additional sort of resources? So like in the appendix, right, I put just a reading list for folks to really 
work on their own cultural competence. But I think too, it's like understanding the history of the country and the history of um, sort of how we got here. There's such excellent scholarship about it that it, that is accessible. I mean, I think sometimes people are like, oh my God, I don't want to read history books because they're X, Y, and Z, whatever ways we might feel about them. But I mean, I think one of the really important books we have is for thinking about sort of the role of white women in history. Um, there's a book called Whiteness is, um, oh, they were her property, right? Um, and thinking about how white women have um, upheld racism and racist practices. And I think that, you know, again, right? Like what is the space that we have for reading those narratives, but, and how can they sort of help us to understand how we got here and why we need to do something differently? So that's, I mean, I think we should start with history. And also um, so much of our books, we, we have, we want to teach, or expose children to historical periods, but you know, like we got to know our own space and how we got here, and and that you know, like there's some reckoning to do for particular groups of people. I think we all have our own reckoning, um, and white folks probably got to reckon a lot too in ways that maybe they haven't even begun reckoning with. But that's where it's got to start. We all have to do something, um, and I and I that's what I think that if you put the book down at the end, I hope that that's what gets you started. Like do something today. <laughs> yeah, I think that. And, and by reckoning, like, I, I know that people who listen to this episode are going to be a choir that we're preaching to. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of this needs to go to people who aren't going to, who aren't listening to these kinds of podcasts. Yeah, yeah. But page 43, by reckoning, I think it was, you don't have to look it up. Don't worry. I'll tell you. Like, oh, oh, <laughs> it's where you talk sorry. about mm -hmm. the eight identities and mm -hmm. you have, and it's like a self audit, self assessment. Yeah. Reckoning doesn't have to be just like putting yourself through some kind of self-flagellating guilt trip. It's really about sitting with what has happened, whether it's been some of the good things and then also some of the bad things. And then some of the areas of privilege that we all might have. Yeah. We all have like, how those not, have we a, all have, yeah, we all have dominant how those have and non-dominant identities. Really just, exactly. Yeah. It's just sitting with it and thinking about it. And also thinking about how we move through the world with those identities, right? And I mm -hmm. feel like that the eight makes me my makes me think too, like how do I move in spaces, um, and how might you know I be read in spaces? And then what are the identities that I need to make sure that I understand um, people who are not that, right? I think a lot about um, ability and disability mm -hmm. and. Mm -hmm also um trans folks right like what are the what are the ways that i need to educate myself and become um much more competent um, so then i can advocate for my kids my people everyone yes and that was the part that i wanted to really just that's why i jumped in i think mm -hmm. we know we talked about this before we started recording that the political opponents um are trying to just score political points. They don't really care about the actual issue probably, but pretending that they do, the accusation is that one, we're, that people are trying to make folks feel guilty and hurt and just really feel bad about everything. And then two, the other myth is that we're, that teachers are trying to indoctrinate kids. But is if you read the book, through a critical lens, if you read the book and read it through just honestly reading it, it's really about trying to help kids, like you said, advocating for kids and 
teaching, reaching kids that aren't being reached. I know. I know. And right. There's just like, that's all that it's really yeah. about at the heart. Yeah. And also like, what is our job? Right. Like what is our job? And I just think about so many kids who wish teachers stood up for them, wish they had a book that reflected their experience in ways that were positive, wish that our classrooms were safe. And so mm-hmm. um, I'm here for them, right? I'm here for them. I'm here for the future thems that we need to make sure that we have. Um, and so like, I just, I, that's what I would tell people too, is to not get distracted, right? Mm-hmm. Like there, this is, yes, it's a high level conversation about political issues, teaching is political for sure. And Mm -hmm. also, right, our work is for, you know, this moment and for these young people. And Mm -hmm. yes, and history also is horrible. Um, It's also horrible for the people who um, have died, right? Mm -hmm. Who have, um, we don't even know their names, um, who look like me, who look like our students, right? Like our history matters too. And Mm -hmm. I think that it's, we gotta tell the whole story. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, like, I'm sorry if people got their feelings hurt, but you know, like tell the truth and teach the truth. <laughs> and so it starts with studying ourselves. And then the other part is not just jumping to buying books, but <laughs> studying our students before we jump into buying yeah. books. Right. I mean, you, I'm amazed by how many people like don't talk to their kids. Right? <laughs> like they just don't be talking to the students. What are you serious? And again, right. You gotta, it's, it's a humbling experience. Because some they're going to tell you if they really trust you, then they're going to tell you things that maybe you weren't really quite prepared for, and mm-hmm. maybe you don't want to hear on that day. And we still have to listen anyway. Mm-hmm. But like they, they want to know things, and I feel like I always will do those surveys at the beginning of the year. It's the best use of my time is to find out what are you coming in with, what do you want to do, how can we do it together, and then to build the library around them. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, and sure, there are books that, you know, we're going to add because we know things um, and we'll have those in our library, too, but not just to haphazardly build um, books. Right. Like and also to get rid of our own biases about books and literature, mm-hmm. literature, because, <laughs> you know, kids want to read those things and we might not like them. I love that Donna Lynn Miller always says, don't let our um blindnesses be our weakness or like don't let our biases be our weaknesses or something right because mm. I got there right I, I am not the biggest sci-fi fan and fantasy but students love it so I have embraced it I am learning um and you know like I listened to them because they were like this library is janky right like where is this and you know I was like but but you have this over here they didn't want to read that they wanted to read you know, like Octavia Butler and who doesn't, um, but you know, I had to like do the work, I had to get the books, I had to learn the books and that was good. Right. Cause we got there, but that's it. Like you got to listen to the kids. And the, and building off of what you said, you know, it's, it's also not a new idea that teachers should be studying our students more than we do. Right. Like I was thinking yeah. about in college, they talked about Maria Montessori. That was her, her jam. <laughs> I know. Right. And I think like studying can be like such a negative, like, like studying is like, we're not researchers, right. We're not like, oh my goodness, like the students are doing this. And then, but it's, I feel like it's more like humbling ourselves enough to actually value them and value Mm -hmm. their opinions to figure out like what's going on with them. Right. And I think too, that Julia talks a lot about reading trauma and I feel like there's writing trauma as well that kids come in with. And so we got to figure that out. And as much as we can, we got to like help them to write like that, a different story because they, 
I don't know, like kids, I work with high school kids and they, by the time they get to me, they just are done with writing, like not a lot of positive relationships. And so that didn't happen just on its own. And what can we do in this moment to actually like fix it? Instead of you, the thing that you said that really hit me is instead of being gatekeepers, we need to like, remember that we're teachers, not gatekeepers. And so that's a good segue into culturally relevant intentional literacy communities crilc or do you do you say it as the word or is it CRILC? yeah i mean it's uh, both right okay. like it's it's not even it doesn't even like flow off the tongue which i was really trying but it just didn't work that way so some people are like quilts and I, I, don't, I don't know i don't i wouldn't yeah sure but um yes culturally relevant intentional literacy communities is what they are so let's talk about what they are first yeah, there are um, spaces, classrooms and otherwise, um, spaces external to school where um, everyone in that space is working together through routines and rituals to create positive literacy experiences for everyone in the room, right? It comes through um, a series of really getting to know each other, of sort of naming all of the unnameable things, right? Acknowledging what kids and adults might be coming in with and also working collaboratively to really figure out like, what does it take for everyone in that space to have a positive literacy experience by the time it ends? Um, and, uh, you know, like it could be go, it could continue long past that school year, which would be great, right? Like multiple spaces ideally would exist, but within that time and space, right? There are particular routines and rituals that are created with and by everyone in the space that helps um, everyone to thrive and have a really robust literacy life. So like a good example that I think this might be a little bit of a bomb drop for some teachers, but um, a good example would be substituting reading conferences for reading logs. Can you talk about the other way around? The other way around. Yeah. I meant like doing reading conferences instead of reading logs. Yes. An English teacher should be able to form a sentence better than I can, but it's just just who I am. It's okay. It's okay. But I was right there with you. I was like, I get it. Yeah. 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 Can you talk about like how reading, just as like an example, as like a microcosm, how uh, putting reading conferences in place of reading logs could be a routine that fits in at CRILC? Yeah, right. You got it. Um, I think too, at first, right, you have to evaluate like what's going on with a particular practice that we have. The reading logs, for example, like why do we do them? And just as someone who did them, right, Mm -hmm. um, I thought that that was getting me to get kids, that would help me to track what my students were reading, right? Reliably, I would know they would be doing the thing, they would turn it in, I would put that grade in my grade book and keep it moving, right? I would have proof that they were reading. What really happened was that students either didn't turn them in, or I mean, I, I forced it and I even had them get it signed by someone in their household um, or they didn't have a signature or they were forging the signatures or they were handing them in incomplete if at all so then right I'm I'm the grade goes in and it's not a great grade and then those grades add up right Mm -hmm. so then all of a sudden what I thought was a great idea is actually doing harm to kids Mm -hmm. Um, and I was like oh my god and the kids weren't reading right like so I I would notice right because lots of Mondays it was Monday morning so when those things were due, it was like, I hated Mondays because then I knew that they weren't doing it. And then I put you in a bad mood when kids aren't doing work. 
right? That you think, oh, this is supposed to be a good assignment. And also other people were doing reading logs, right? It was like a the, the culture a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I was like, this isn't working. And I talked to the kids and I said like, what's going on? Why aren't you tired of this? You're, this I did, like, I thought that this was a great idea. Um, and the kids were like, this, this is not effective. I don't like doing this. It's not making me a better reader. In fact, it's making me hate reading. And so I was like, okay, what, what would work for you? Well, you know, like, why don't you just ask me? Like, we talk about it. Um, and so then, right, I was working, uh, I was reading lots, right? So like Donna Miller, Penny Kittle, other folks were doing reading conferences. And I was doing that sort of informally, but hadn't really committed. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to stop doing the reading logs. Kids sort of cheered. <laughs> Right, those days when I was like, okay, we're not doing it anymore. Um, and I said, all right, I'm gonna try these reading conferences things and started to do reading conferences in ways that, you know, were like, when you start, it's terrible. You just sort of start and that's okay. The kids, you know, if you have a good relationship with it, they're not gonna like vilify you. They're gonna be happy that they're not doing the thing they hated and be like, all right, I'll try this thing. And I would say, okay, I'm trying this. It's, I'm new at it, but I'm building on what you said. So let's go with it. And they, and I would learn so much more about who they were as readers and what they needed. And if they were reading the books and understanding the books and where I needed to support them a little bit in their own reading development, that um, it was incredible. It was incredible. And I had never will like ever do a reading log again. Can't encourage teachers enough just to get rid of that practice. But you know, that's a routine. It's a routine <laughs> and something that happens all the time. And so it accompanies like the daily in-class reading that also happens with kids, right? That they know um, they can rely on, they know it's gonna happen. It helps them um, to build their own reading muscles, helps to build their reading identities. And it's something that really comes from them, responds to them and get, and everyone sort of gets what they need. Yeah, it, it seems, this is a good example of a CRILC practice that helps move us away from punishment, compliance, and shame and moves us toward teaching, helping kids get better, and trying to build positive attitudes toward the work instead of reinforcing some of the negative attitudes. Yeah. It's, that's really what's at the core of any practice that you bring into the community, right? I love that. Yeah, you're exactly right. I was using your that. words. <laughs> I, I mean, there. I was like, I love that, Noah. Like, yeah, I love the revoicing of it. Excellent. Yes. <laughs> so, right. so one listener back in November submitted this question. We've been thinking about it a lot at the, at the Ohio Writing Project. Um, one thing about this, here's what they said. One thing about this school year that worries me is the way the manipulation of critical race theory is stirring up fear in our community. I'd love any insider discussion about how teachers are successfully communicating with both parents and administrators about this. Um, we're trying to talk to as many people as we can about this question because it's yeah. it's the thing that a lot of teachers are dealing with right now. Uh, I was curious to see how you would weigh in on it. And knowing that um, based off of the courageous conversations about race tenants, mm-hmm. We don't have to have a sense of closure at the end. Right, right, right. (laughs) Exactly. I love that. I love that. I mean, I think that so much of it is, um, I just remember, like, I try not to get distracted, right? Um, One, right, I think a lot of people don't even know what CRT is, right? So I try to be, um, I try to, you know, teach myself, right? Like, they're like, Google is great. Um, and I encourage us to do that, to really understand like where it's happening. It's not happening in K to 12. 
Um, and also like, why, what's, what about it is making people mad? That's also sort of interesting to know just for ourselves. And then to go, um, back to the focus on the work, right? I don't know necessarily if a lot of this is happening in city schools. Um, I mean, I, and I primarily work in city schools um, and work with city kids in city schools. So I don't, I don't see it a lot. Um, I'm sure that that doesn't mean that we're not immune to it. I just think that, you know, like teachers are fighting different fights in that particular space. But for teachers and folks who are in those other spaces, um, I would do those two things, but also to remember that, you know, we can attend those meetings too, right? We can go to the PTA, we can go to the school board meetings, we can make public comments, we can do, we can advocate just like um, other people advocate. And so I think that we should think about like, what are the ways that we can organize ourselves together to um, educate people on the ground, right? Like, I feel like every parent thinks they're doing the right thing for their child. And so maybe that's um, doing community events, right? For people, because not everyone believes that CRT is the devil, right? There are lots of people in those communities and families who just want their children to read and write great things. And so we are the experts. So what can we do? Like, maybe that's like a day on writing, a small day on writing. Maybe that's a small like reading group. Maybe that's a read in. I don't know, right? Like teachers can do amazing things. We do it all the time. Um, and we are creative people. So how do we push back in ways that make sense for us that also give us um, a reminder of our own agency and also, right? Like, teach the truth. And I think that there are ways, but if we just keep being on the offense or the, no, on the defense, right. Then it's just, it just takes up so much energy. So I just think one, I don't pay attention to them because I'm like, we're going to, what we're doing is right by kids. And that's what we need to keep doing, but we can't do it by ourselves. So who can, who can join it, this work with us so that it's not just, they can't just pick us off one by one, but it's a, it's an organized concerted effort. I have nothing to add. That's perfect. <laughs> um, so let's let's move on to the part of the interview where we bring it on home. Oh, you yeah. recently on your on your website, which I'll refer people to in our show notes. Oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> sure. You talked about five things I learned while writing a book, and it's basically telling people, "Hey, you should write a book." I want to start with what role we when we talk to writers. I like to ask all kinds of questions about like process and like what are your settings and conditions for writing that you set for yourself but you talked in one of your you said that scheduling and goal setting play crucial roles can you talk Mm -hmm. about how you schedule how you do your how your goal setting process works yeah I mean I again I had a really great editor who would say okay you want this book work backwards we want this book by x date so this means like you got to hit these targets um and I'd written a dissertation right and I had an amazing um, dissertation advisor, Dr. Arlette Willis, who schedule, schedule, this is what we need to do. And so I respond well to that. Uh, I, I schedule my life through post-its and to-do lists. Um, I don't always do those things, but, you know, aspirations. And so I would just do that. I would just, you know, say like, okay, this is where I want to go. And also I have a seven-year-old. So I would write, I, I write in the morning, like I get up at four and then just write. Um, but I was pretty, I had the habit from writing a dissertation that it was pretty, it was not awful to sort of return to. And that I just knew that I had to knock out X number of pages or X number of words by the time he got up. So that's what I did. That's perfect. So you have a certain, and I think that 
there's certain little like external factors like family, like work schedules that can yeah, be Yeah, and your energy, helpful. right? I'm oh, not yeah. writing at night. I, I admire those people who can sort of get up and write whenever they have time. But I always know that I have time before, between like four and 6 a.m. So that's when I am my most Ooh, productive. That's early. I know it is. I grew up on a farm. So yeah, that's right. It's like, it's, it's, it's fine. It's <laughs> fine right. to get up that early for me. I should ask your opinion on the daylight savings time stuff that's in Congress, but I shouldn't I know, right? I just, someone asked me that the other day. I was like, I don't know. I mean, I, I like it when the days are longer in the summer and also, right. I feel like it's a season we get through it. These are the kinds of hard hitting questions that people come to our podcast for. Yes. Right. I'm happy we're taking them up, Noah. (laughs) So how did uh, writing a book help you better understand your teaching practice? Yeah. I mean, I feel like um, Dr. Teresa Perry, who has been one of my mentors forever, has always said, right, you don't own your practice until you write about your practice. And I had always been like, oh, yeah, okay, okay. But then I really came to understand it, right? I feel like so much of um, what I did as a teacher was sort of like on through feeling autopilot and sort of like, oh, no, we'll try it. And so to really have to go back and to look at the theory that grounds the practice and to ask really the why, um, and then to realize that some things were not in the best interest of kids too, right? There's that really humbling aspect of, huh, this, what what I thought was great reading logs, for example, was just doing this harm to kids. Um, So that was part of it. And actually a big part about it is that like, oh, okay, I'm writing about my practices, um, now I really understand the why and also can really communicate that to other people. Before we stop recording, is there any, uh, any other final thoughts that we didn't get to that you wanted to make sure that we touched on? Oh, you know, I just am so appreciative of folks who um, pick up the book, who read the book, who like reach out and say, you know, this, this moved me or I really enjoyed it or it made me think because I feel like, again, this is, there's so many books about teaching and I, I would imagine that all we want to do is to make, um, make a space for folks to do that work. And so I'm just really, really grateful. And, you know, it's really, really fun too. <laughs> if you're looking for ways that you can follow Dr. Kim Parker and her work. I have tons of links as always in our show notes. I also have linked where you can purchase her book, Literacy is Liberation. And listener, we just barely skimmed the surface of the things that she talks about in her book. It's such an in-depth and comprehensive, holistic guide, I guess you could say, to just really digging into your practice and trying to do better for our students. And that's what it's all about, right? You can also find more ways that you can connect with the Ohio Writing Project in our show notes. Um, You might have noticed that there was a listener-submitted question that we uh, discussed in this interview. So if you have a question or a topic that you'd like us to discuss, contact information is in the show notes. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in to Write Answers. (laughs) 